Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us. My name is Tom Spohr, Director of the Center for National Defense at the Heritage Foundation. I want to welcome you all for attending. We've got a great program in store for you, and since we're only going to go for an hour, I don't want to take too much time at the start. But in terms of housekeeping, our guest, Mr. Levine, will speak for about 12 minutes or so, and then I'll ask him some questions to get things going, and then we'll turn to you, the audience, for your questions, which you will submit through the GoToMeeting question box. And we encourage you to submit questions throughout the webinar in the box on the right-hand side of your screen. When you enter your question, please include your name and your affiliation, if you have one, so we can put your question in its proper context. This program is being recorded, it's on the record, and it'll be available in perpetuity at heritage.org. And we'll also email it to you within 48 hours of the end of this. Well, our topic this morning is implementing successful reform in the Department of Defense to make the Pentagon, as Peter Levine says, work better and cost less. For as long as there's been a DOD, there's been a perception of a bloated, wasteful bureaucracy that spends money wantonly. Just today in the Washington Post, there was an opinion piece that made the call to reduce military spending based on the author's conclusion that the Pentagon is riddled with waste, fraud, and abuse, and that there are billions upon billions of wasteful spending. Reforming the Department of Defense is only one of three major lines of approach in the national defense strategy, putting it on the level with building a more lethal force and strengthening alliances. But as our guest will tell us, reform is hard. As Congress contemplates future reform efforts or as new leaders take their place in the Pentagon, these people may be tempted to dismiss reforming the Pentagon as mission impossible. But that would be the wrong reaction. Reform is possible and should be attempted. But as Peter will tell us, it requires a thoughtful, and deliberate approach. Well, no one knows this area better than Peter Levine, and we are lucky he has captured his thoughts in his new book, Defense Management Reform, How to Make the Pentagon Work Better and Cost Less. Here's my copy here, and I recommend the book. Uh, we're putting in, we're gonna put the information on how to get you a copy in the chat box, so you can get it and, and see what Peter's talking about. Peter Levine is one of the few true experts in this field, and I invite him to join us on the screen at this time. He served for 30 years in the legislative and executive branches in key positions. He was counsel to Senator Carl Levin, a noted Pentagon reformer, and counsel for the Senate Committee on Government Affairs. After that, he spent 19 years on the Senate Armed Services Committee with the last two as its director. In these roles, he worked on major pieces of defense reform legislation including the Weapons Systems Acquisition Reform Act of 2009. In 2015, for his sins, Mr. Levine moved to the Pentagon and assumed duties as the Deputy Chief Management Officer, the Senior Advisor to the SecDef on Business Transformation and Reform, and then performed the duties as the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness. He's now a Senior Fellow with the Institute for Defense Analysis. So now Peter's gonna make some remarks which will follow with questions. I, I remind you of the uh, opportunity to take 
and submit your questions at the chat box now or at any time in the program. So over to you, Peter. Uh, thank you, Tom. And, and I'd like to start by thanking you and the Heritage Foundation for putting on this event. Uh, the Department of Defense spends more than $700 billion a year on its vital national security mission. So as citizens, we should all care about how well that money is spent. That's what defense management reform is, about, is all about. Um, my book is based on three, three case studies, one of civilian personnel reform, one of acquisition reform, and one of financial management reform. I had two purposes in doing this. One was to survey 30 years of management reform initiatives and to share some of the institutional knowledge that I've developed over a career of working in, in, on these issues, what's worked, what hasn't, and why. And the second is to try to develop some lessons for reform efforts in general. Why is it that some efforts at reform are successful while others fail? Um, I'm not gonna try to get, go through the whole book with you, but fortunately I have distilled down to set 10 simple rules of why things work and why, and why others don't. And some of these rules may seem obvious, but it's amazing how many senior Pentagon officials, members of Congress and reform advocates just don't seem to get them and how many times mandate reform efforts have fallen short as a result. So with no further ado, here are my 10 rules. Rule number one, nobody gets to start with a clean sheet of paper. The, de the Department of Defense actually exists. It has policies and procedures and systems and organizations that employs millions of people who carry out national security mission missions every day. If you don't understand what the existing system is, why it exists, what functions it performs, and who it benefits, you'll never get anywhere on management reform. Uh, the example I would give on this is people look at, at, at the military pay system and say, hey, wouldn't it be nice to have a salary system? It would be much simpler. It would incentivize people better than this mishmash of salary and benefits that we have right now. To which I would say, okay, and have you thought about, number one, why have we had the benefits? And if you went to a salary system, what would that do to people who get a housing allowance now, to people who get extra pay, uh, extra su supplemental pay uh, to deal with, with the fact that they're married and have children? Uh, who get different kinds of benefits, who get additional housing allowance because they live in more expensive areas. How are you going to persuade the people who are, who are getting money for that right now that that's unfair and you should take away that money and give it to somebody else? And what is it that makes you think that that would ever work? So, yes, you can... It's not a bad idea to, 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 to sort of blue sky things and come up with abstract ideas, but when it comes to actually instituting reform, you need to understand what's there now before you get into the details. Uh, rule number two, all the good ideas have already been tried. The department not only exists, it actually has a history. Previous administrations and previous officials have faced the same problems that you face today and may have even tried the same solutions. If you want to succeed at reform, you're probably going to be best advised to understand what is, what's been tried before and why it did or didn't work. Rule number three, never overlook what's already working. So reformers have a tendency to list the problems with the existing system, conclude that the existing system isn't working because it has these problems, and propose to throw it out and start over. However, the existing system all, almost always has positive aspects as well. There's some systems that are worth throwing out and starting over, but most of the time the existing system is doing some things that work for some people. And if you don't take the time to understand what's working in the system, you may inadvertently throw out the good things along with the bad making management problems worse than they are today. Rule number four, there are no perfect solutions, only competing priorities. Uh, the example I would give here is, is uh, from, from my career, one of the first issues that I worked on uh, when I came to the Senate Governmental Affairs Committee back in the late 1980s was uh, defense inventory, logistics reform. 
And there was there were a series of GAO reports on what was called excess inventory. And nobody on the Governmental Affairs Committee could understand why does DOD have all this excess inventory? Why do they buy things that they don't need? And the, the pressure was buy less, target it more exactly to to uh, to uh, on time to to on time type of delivery, um, commercial type practices, which is great. That's an efficient solution, and there's a reason why commercial commercial companies go to that kind of thing. But you need to be aware of a competing priority in the Department of Defense, which is it makes a big difference to us what our response time is of how quickly we can get that part when we need it, and we can't afford to have the wait time if it means that a tank or an aircraft is going to be down. So yes, there's efficiency, there's also effectiveness. You have to balance the two. You can't just drive toward one and ignore the other. Rule number five, one size fits all solutions don't work. An approach that works for a private sector company may not work for DOD, and a solution that works for one part of the department may be completely inappropriate for another part of the department. It's perfectly reasonable for the Pentagon to consider commercial solutions and other tried and true approaches but the Department of Defense is an incredibly large and diverse place and reforms that fail to account for the unique aspects of its operations and requirements are unlikely to succeed. Rule number six, the best design reforms take a well-defined subset of problems, identify root causes and develop focused solutions. Rule number seven, one of my favorites, legislation doesn't solve anything. That's a slight overstatement, but if legislation alone could solve problems, we would have no more sexual assault in the military, no more drugs crossing the southern border, and the Department of Defense would have a financial would have had a financial and an auditable financial statement 30 years ago, and legislative price caps on aircraft carriers and other major systems would have made cost overruns a distant memory. We can legislate all those things, but that doesn't mean we can make them happen. Rule number eight. Don't try to take on too much. This is the greatest problem that senior leaders in, in Congress share, have alike, trying to take on everything at the same time. What you need to recognize is senior leaders in the Pentagon have broad responsibilities and limited time. So when they try to attack everything at once, they often end up accomplishing nothing at all. Rule number nine, another one of my favorites, nobody in the Pentagon follows orders. Now that's a slight overstatement too. The military has a clear operational command and the military does follow orders. But administrative authority is diffused in so many different directions that most policy decisions must be made on the basis of consultation and consensus rather than direction. For this reason, reform efforts rarely succeed in the absence of engaged leadership and constant awareness of the institutional interests and internal imperatives of affected organizations and individuals. Which brings me to rule number 10, the most effective reform initiatives build broad support, address organizational alignment and individualist incentives, and are driven by continuous engagement of senior officials. There is no substitute for active, engaged leadership. Um, I'd like to take just a few more minutes before I turn it over to Tom and questions to focus for briefly on an issue that both Tom and I have worked on and on which we share views that are very distinctly in a minority in Washington, the effort to achieve an auditable financial statement for the Department of Defense. If you want the whole story, of the department's effort to achieve an auditable financial statement over the last three decades, you should read the book. But bottom line up front, we've been spending a ton of money on the effort without achieving much of anything. As Tom has pointed out, you could spend an unlimited amount of money on $400 hammers and $600 coffee cups, and as long as you put that, that money in the right place on your financial statement, it would be audible. I was on the staff of the Senate Governmental Affairs Committee 30 years ago, when Senator Glenn first made the defense audit a legislative priority and a legal requirement. 
I remember asking his lead staffer why they had chosen this obscure issue for him. Nobody seemed particularly interested in, in, in auditing. It's not, it not a really an issue that really grabbed you. His answer was, the money involved is staggering. When we shine a light on this, he said, it will make all of the acquisition scandals of the past look like small, small change. He wasn't entirely wrong. The numbers are huge. For example, every few years, we have a report that the Army has been unable to support several trillion, that's trillion with a T, dollars in bookkeeping adjustments. There's always some, some genius who thinks that we could use this money to balance the budget, pay for universal health care, rebuild the nuclear triad, or eliminate greenhouse gas emissions. The problem is, this isn't actually real money. These are adjustments. The money should have been entered in column A, instead it was put in column B. The bookkeeping adjustment moves it back into column A. And the reason it's trillion, trillions of dollars is because the system generates corrections over and over and over again. So the same corrections may be counted hundreds of times over. Um, so yeah, there's real money there, but the question is, are there real savings? I would say that over the last three decades, we may have saved several hundred million dollars through our focus on auditability. The problem is we spent billions of dollars, probably tens of billions of dollars on the effort. When you work for 30 years on the same problem and don't get much closer to a solution, maybe you should start thinking again about whether the effort is worthwhile. And with that, Tom, um, I'd be happy to turn it over for questions. Well, great, Peter. Thank you so much. That's, that's fascinating stuff. It, it kind of reminds us that uh, reform is not for the faint of heart, but it, it needs to be done. So uh, you talked about it uh, has to be focused, collaborative, uh, understand the problem before you jump in. Uh, yet uh, personnel turnover in the Pentagon, especially lately, has been near constant. And a lot of the leaders that come into the DOD don't come with a background in business management or business transformation. They might be operators and they may know policy. How, given this wide variety of the leaders that come into the Pentagon, you know, I'm just interested in what you, how can a Secretary of Defense uh, hope to implement a reform agenda and be successful? Well, first I want to say that every Secretary of Defense we've had in my memory has made business reform, management reform, and, and a major objective in one way or the other. That includes the current, the current Secretary, Secretary Asper, who's done a good job on this issue. Um, continuity of leadership is a problem. It has always been, not just now, it has always been a major problem in the Department of Defense. And yet you have some secretaries who have been more successful than others, who achieve more than others, who accomplish more than others over time. I would give a couple of, I would go back to a couple of the things that I said and, 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 uh, and focus on them as, as the keys to, to success here. One is a secretary who tries to take on too much isn't going to accomplish anything. And it's particularly true at the level of the Secretary of Defense. The, the scope of responsibility of the Secretary of, of Defense is extraordinary. The time that Secretary has is limited. If you, if you have a Secretary who's going to be there for a full four years, it's still limited. If you have a Secretary who's going to be there for only two years, uh, every minute counts. And in fact, Secretary Carter, who was a Secretary when I was in the, in, in the department, used to track his time to make sure that his time aligned with his priorities because he knew that he had to make his time count. So that's number one. Don't try to take on too much. Choose your targets. Number two is um, you got to be a good delegator and you got to know how to delegate right. If you, if you try to handle everything yourself, you're going to be completely limited by your bandwidth. The number of issues you'll be able to take on will be limited by that. On the other hand, you can't delegate and forget. That just doesn't accomplish anything. If you assign things out and then your attention goes elsewhere and you never come back to it, 
that's not going to work. The key, I think, is to choose a manageable set of targets, assign responsibility to a handful of senior officials, and then hold them accountable. And they're going to need to do the same thing. They're going to need to delegate, but they're going to need to stay engaged and involved to make sure that the results come back and, that, and, 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 and are real. Um, so um, it's hard. Turnover makes it harder. There will always be setbacks to reform efforts, but I do think that a Secretary of Defense or a senior defense official who is focused on reform and chooses targets well and delegates well and stays engaged can accomplish a lot. Great, thank you, Peter. So here's here's a, a question I'm sure you probably were expecting it. It was asked by Federico Bartels from the Heritage Foundation. It was asked by Derek Gondek. Um, both versions of the uh, National Defense Authorization Act proposed to do away with the position of the chief management officer. One says do away with it right away. Other phase it out over two years. Um, uh, the Defense Business Board talked about how the position wasn't even set up uh, for success because authority was not commensurate with responsibility. And some of this, uh, interested in what your thoughts are on this legislation uh, uh, and your thoughts on doing away with the chief management officer position. So first of all, I, I can see why Lisa Hirschman, who is the current uh, chief management officer, would think that these provisions are unreasonable. Um, she was confirmed for the job just a few months ago and the statutory objectives for the for the office were, were put into legislation only a few months before that. Um, moreover, those objectives are manifestly unachievable and unreasonable on their face. The, the statute says that the, the chief management officer is expected to achieve a 25% reduction in the cost of personnel, logistics, acquisition, and, and, and property operations of the Department of Defense in a period of less than 18 months. Um, that's, uh, to me, that's, that's Congress showing that it doesn't understand what management is and how it works and what, what can be achieved and what kinds of periods of time. So I can understand why Lisa Hirschman feels that she's being unfairly targeted by this, by this legislation. On the other hand, I'm not a great fan of the existing CMO setup. I, I question whether the chief management officer should be the third highest ranking official in the Department of Defense. I don't think that it has re responsibilities and, and authorities and uh, that are commensurate with that. It certainly doesn't have resources that are commensurate with that. And, and I think that going back to what you said about the Defense Business Board report, I do I, I share their view that the chief management officer's resource and re that the chief management officer's resources and authorities are misaligned. I don't believe that the office has the personnel and the resources that line up with the missions and the expectation for the office. Having said all of that, this office has already been subject to far too many legislative reorganizations, and I don't think that another legislative reorganization is gonna solve the problem. At some point, Congress just has to stop rearranging the deck chairs and allow the department to manage its own business. Great, uh, super answer, thank you. So uh, two people kind of asked this question, uh, Federico Bartels and then uh, Dakota Wood also asked, they're interested in the role, you know, you've talked about Congress and its role. What, what is the proper role for Congress uh, to help reform the Pentagon? And uh, Dakota Wood talks about all the turnover in the Pentagon, it's similar kind of turnover in Congress. How can, how can the Congress best assist efforts uh, to reform the Pentagon? Well, I think the first thing that Congress needs to do is understand the scope of what's possible and not possible to do through legislation. You cannot manage the Pentagon through legislation. Congress cannot manage the Pentagon. Leaders in the Pentagon have to manage the building. 
Um, so what can Congress do? It can do a few things. One is it can, it can give the department authorities that it needs to run the building. It can look at existing regulations and existing structures and, and streamline them and make them work better. It can work with officials in the department to understand what the impediments are to, to, to good management, what the impediments are to good policy, and help remove those impediments. And then the, the last thing that Congress can do is to get out of the way. And, and, and I go back to choosing targets. The legislation that we have, and I was on, I was on the Senate Armed Services Committee staff for, for 18 or 19 years, so I share blame for this. I wrote lots of legislation in my time, but there's too much of it. There is too much uh, effort to get to every detail in the Pentagon and how it works. And it's beyond the capacity of the Pentagon to, to, to absorb that much. We have too much, too much of the kind of thing where one year, one, one member of Congress sees something as a priority. And so we have to write a piece of legislation on it. The next year, another member of Congress comes back to the same problem. And so you write a second piece of legislation with addressing the same problem with no reference to the first. And you have these overlapping provisions and overlapping requirements and more and more reports that absorbs the time and energy of the Pentagon leadership and the Pentagon staff to where that they have less time to do their real job. Great. So next question comes from a Dr. Denise Minor Williams, a heritage member, a retired nurse, wife of retired MP officer and mother of two army officers. And so I have to say hua and, and uh, thank you for you and your family service. She asks, what can I as a citizen uh, do to help reform? And how, maybe she lives in Texas, how can is there a way she can influence uh, reform all the way in Texas, maybe through her uh, legislators? Well, I think that the that, that in the past, major reform initiatives have been informed and, 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 and propelled to some extent by public support. So when the public says um, this acquisition stuff is just unacceptable, I can't believe we're wasting money this way and starts to weigh in, it gets the attention of Congress. It gets the attention of, of the Pentagon, and you do see action. I think that expecting pub, the public to uh, to get into the details of how management reform works and to, to prod their, their senators or the representatives to support the exact right variation of, of, of management reform is expecting too much of individual, individual members of the public and too much of the relationship they have with, with their members of Congress. Um, but to be informed and to be active and to care, I think, is an important contribution and something that the public does bring to this issue. Great. Thank you. Uh, next question comes from Joseph Adams. He looks like he's a uh, perhaps a colleague of yours over at uh, Institute for Defense Analysis. Uh, he asks about the relationship between um, quantifying the dollars spent and what that gets us in terms of the readiness of the DOD. And so that, you know, obviously should be our objective. He's his asked his questions are to you. How how can this be approached? How can we get after that type of relationship? Well, we often tend to focus too much on dollars and not enough on results. Dollars dollars are an input, um, and and we say we're spending a lot of money on this, so therefore we've made it a priority without looking at what we're achieving with that money. So uh, in terms of readiness, uh, I have to tell you that Joe Adams is 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 IDA's expert on 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 readiness. So I don't want to. I don't want to. He he knows more than I will ever know about how you measure readiness um, and and um, and what you need to do to promote readiness. Uh, the it, as as you know, Tom, uh, 
that's an, an incredibly intricate issue where you have a personnel readiness, you have uh, material readiness, you have training readiness, you have the, the readiness of all your uh, supporting, your, your logistics, your, your uh, C3I. All those things have to come together to, 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 to make you ready. Just saying I'm spending more money doesn't help you if you're not spending it on, on the right things. So having a systematic approach where you can assess where your weaknesses are and understand where the next dollar should be spent and you'll get the best benefit from it, I think is an important part and an important part of the effort. And I think we're, that's an area where we're not nearly as good at it as, as we should be. What we tend to rely on uh, because it's so complex is the individual judgment of our senior military leaders. And our senior, we have senior military leaders who have an extraordinary experience in this area, who have spent their careers uh, looking at these issues. So that's not bad. It's not a bad thing to to rely on. But uh, we we could perhaps do better here if we had better data systems and better analysis to support decisions that we made. So we wouldn't just be relying on individual judgment. Great. Uh, our next question comes from Tom Neville, and he asks, uh, "Is it realistic for the Pentagon?" to go to zero-based budgeting. So this goes back to my point about being aware of what already exists. And, and I would say zero-based budgeting as an exercise for a new administration coming in may be a good idea. Uh, you, wanna, you wanna really look at what's going on and not just assume the first $650 billion of the budget, and I only get to think about the, the last 50 billion, if you if you go to zero-based budgeting, you can question underlying assumptions, question existing programs, and that's important to do at at, at least some point. On the other hand, um, these programs all exist, and it's not as if you can just cancel them all and start some of that, start a completely different set. Most of those programs are going to continue. So on an ongoing basis, year to year, you probably don't want to do zero-based budgeting. Going back down to zero and justifying the ground up every year is an exercise that would be tremendously difficult um, and probably would have diminishing returns. So the concept of zero-based budgeting is, is, I think, a good one, at least on a periodic basis. Uh, but remember that you're not really starting with a clean sheet of paper. Great, thank you. So uh, next question, uh, this is something that Sean Lennon brought up and uh, it's got to do with the audit, which you touched on in your remarks. Uh, and your book also has a, a great chapter on the DOD audit and how the DOD audit is really not uh, accomplishing anything uh, for the Pentagon in terms of making it more uh, efficient or effective or rooting out any waste. Uh, yet this DOD audit in the form of the CFO Act is the law of the land. And, and in the true nature of the Pentagon, they are gonna spend from now until eternity uh, and billions of dollars to pass it. Are there any realistic alternatives to that somewhat uh, gloomy scenario? So first, having worked on Senate staff for almost 30 years, I never view legislation as being something that's unchangeable. Um, if the legislation is a problem, then my view is the first, uh, the first option is to try to fix the legislation. Uh, in fact, one of the issues that I first worked on when I came to the Senate Armed Services Committee in 1996 was the defense audit, um, probably a couple years after that. Um, I started hearing from from the department that they were uh, they were in the process of hiring what they called an army of auditors. That's not your army. That's a different army um, to review financial statements, and they had little hope of success. But that 
the expense of hiring that army of auditors was going to squeeze out to, to look at financial statements was going to squeeze out all the regular work that the IG and the auditors did to look to, to try to root out fraud, waste and abuse. And they were saying, we're going to be spending all our money on this and the department's going to be worse off for it. I helped enact a provision back at that time telling the department, don't spend more than minimal money on auditing financial statements until the secretary is ready to certify the department's financial systems are sufficiently sufficiently reliable to make the effort worthwhile, and that actually, uh, I I think there are members of Congress who would hear that I that I advocated that and um, and 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 say throw the guy out, but I'm not in, so they can't throw me out. Um, but I think we saved the department uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on audit efforts and hiring of auditors that would not have been worthwhile. So I don't I don't write off the possibility that legislation should be changed. But even within the framework of the current legislation, I believe the department has a lot of flexibility. In particular, the department should prioritize spending for audit building blocks that will improve the availability and reliability of data that the department actually needs for management purposes. There is plenty of spending that the department can do that is directed toward the audit in the long run and is really important for the department to do to provide better information and, and, and get better information and data available so they can make, so they can have timely information available for management purposes. To his credit, I believe that the current Deputy Secretary, David Norquist, who was the comptroller and was in charge of the audit, understands auditing and financial statements as, as well as anybody who has held the position. And I believe he has made an effort to do this and to prioritize those expenditures that will be in the long run of long run best interest of the department. Um, I do believe, though, that he's held back by this mistaken view that somehow the department is going to be able to produce an auditable financial statement. I don't think it will, and I think that there's a lot of good money that's going after bad on that effort. Thank you, Peter. Uh, next question comes from Tony Bertuca from Inside Defense. He talks about the great focus that's on cutting the fourth estate, and this has been a phenomenon of the last several years. Uh, currently, the Pentagon claims to have found $5.7 billion that they're going to be able to redirect other priorities, uh, foremost among those uh, modernization. Uh, Tony asks, what do you make of targeting the fourth estate uh, for these efficiencies? Well, um, I don't have any problem with, 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 with the principle of what Secretary Esper is trying to do. He's trying to establish priorities. And we always like to say that the Secretary, if he's the Secretary of Defense, if he wants to spend money on, 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 if he has priorities he wants to spend money on and he wants to elevate things, he's got to figure out what he's not going to do too. And this is Secretary Esper's effort to figure out what he's not going to do. What I want to be clear about though is that that exercise of cutting the fourth estate is not a management reform exercise, it is a cut exercise. So it's saying, these are things that are lower priority, so I'm no longer going to do them. Not going to do things more efficiently, not going to do things better, because the department doesn't have time in the course of this exercise to revise and reform the way it does things, and probably would not be able to squeeze out nearly the amount of money the secretary is looking for by through, through process reforms. It is a cut drill, which means I'm saying, yeah, this is an important thing to do, and it would be nice to be able to do it but it's not as high of a priority as this thing and this thing and this thing that I want to do over the services to modernize my, my military equipment or whatever I want to do over there. And the evaluation that you need to give to it if you're sitting in Congress is, okay, so what is he, what does he prioritize? What's he now going to be spending money on? And what does he cut? Do I agree that that priority is higher? Um, 
there is a tendency sometimes in Congress to look at what's cut without looking what's prior at what's prioritized and say, I really like what's cut, and so I'm going to restore it without understanding that if you restore that cut, you're undermining the Secretary's priority for what he was going to add money for. Thanks, Peter. It's you know, so I guess your point is something that has been called the defense-wide reform really should be called the defense-wide cut drill. <laughs> well, a little bit. I would put if in, in, in Secretary Esper's favor, I would maybe say reprioritization, but yes. Yeah. Okay. okay, good. Uh, thank you. This, this question is for me. You and your, um, your book, in your book, you talk a lot about the best reforms are done uh, open, collaboratory, uh, you know, cross the aisle, uh, everybody's on board type of thing. Not one of these um, last minute um, open up a box and there's a surprise in there. Um, and so you talk about Democrats uh, working hand in hand with Republicans on reform. Uh, in 2020, the summer of 2020, that that notion seemed so far away and uh, antiquated. I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts about how we might be able to get back to that kind of state of affairs. Well, I agree with you, first of all, that we have been moving farther and farther away from that. We've been becoming more and more partisan and has been undermining not just you, you, the public sees the big issues on which there really is conflict between the parties, and that's fine, but it's undermining the ability to do small things in many areas and small things that can be really important and help. To their credit, though, I believe that the Armed Services Committees remain something of an island of cooperation, and still, they still have positive working relationships um, and, and, and rely on those. I like to tell the story, by the way, of when I was there. There was one year uh, when, for reasons that I won't get into, the but Democrats were in the majority. Republicans, when we were going to conference on our on our bill on the NDAA, Republicans joined us in conference for approximately a week before their leadership told them, "No, you're not allowed to join this conference because we don't like this provision," and and they had to withdraw from conference. And the story I like to tell is that I was working on acquisition policy issues at that time. We had met with with Democrats and Republicans, House and Senate had met for that one week that we had, and we'd gone through the entire list of our issues. And we figured out how we wanted to how we wanted to address them. So two months later, when the Republicans when we addressed this political issue and Republicans came back into conference, we were we were able to say, and we had just a few days to wrap up the, the bill before before we had to complete the session. We were able to say to to our Republican co uh, co uh, colleagues, here's the stuff we wrote. We think it's all the all the things that we agreed on two months ago. Would you look at it and tell us if it really if, if it works or if there's something that we missed here? That that's the kind of working relationship that we had at that time, where we had a degree of trust and 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 degree of understanding of each other, where we could sit down in one week and, and and work through these issues and figure out what we wanted to do, and there was still the trust that we could then go back and 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 work on it in isolation because it was required and reach that kind of agreement. I think that. Maybe not that strong a relationship, but the two committees still have very strong relationships. The key to that, in my view, is not only the history of the committees and their 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 history of working together and of producing a bill every year, um, but the shared objective they have, the support for the troops, for a strong military, for effective management of the Department of Defense, not, uh, which are all objectives which tend to be shared by both parties. There's some nuance in how in, in how you want to get there but they tend to be shared objectives. That shared vision may be harder to reconstruct in other areas of, 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 of governance, um, but I think members of Congress need to try. And I think there are areas where they can carve out, area, carve out agreements and where they can make progress. And if they can do that, 
and find out that it feels good to work together and get things accomplished, maybe they can build on it. Great, thank you. A couple of people have kind of hit on this theme, Dr. Uh, Denise uh, Minor-Williams, uh, and also uh, Wayne Armstrong has asked this question. So given uh, the, you know, your advice not to take on too many things and uh, uh, both are asking kind of where are the, where would you focus? If you were a newly assigned SecDef or maybe a DepSecDef, uh, what are the one, two or three things where you would look at? I know um, one school of thought, this is called the Willie Sutton uh, school of thought says, uh, you go to where the money is. You know, he was asked, why do you rob banks? And he said, well, that's because where the money is. And so uh, interested where you would go uh, to look for reform in the Pentagon today. So I, I want to be careful. So the secretary has a limited bandwidth, but he has senior officials working for him. So he has a senior acquisition official, a senior personnel official. He can give each of those an agenda. Each of those, he can have a personnel agenda and an acquisition agenda. You know, it's not limited to, I've got to choose acquisition over personnel, or I've got to choose that over over uh, finance or something like that, because he has senior officials if he if he has a good team that he can rely on. So uh, let me talk about acquisition just for a minute, because we haven't talked about it, um, and it's, it's one of my favorite subjects. What I would say is, uh, in terms of acquisition, is the big thing for the next administration or for the next for the next secretary coming in is that we need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have a tendency to swing back and forth with the pendulum. One, 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 one group comes in and says, we need flexibility, risk-taking speed. Uh, that's, that's where the priority is. And we lose discipline and we end up seeing programs going way over budget. And that's what happened in the 1990s. And we come back and say, we need to have discipline. We need to, um, we need to have cost effectiveness. And we end up with a lot of rigid bureaucracy and the next team comes in and says, we need more flexibility. We need to be able to have both discipline and flexibility. We need to be able to understand that when we buy major defense acquisition, major weapon systems, which are going to cost in the tens of billions of dollars, that we need to have discipline in, in, in the acquisition process, that we can't just make it up as we go along. Um, the, the, the evidence over the years, you can read it in my book. It's a great, great, great thing to, to, to read the history of in my book. Um, is that when we lose that discipline and we start uh, start jumping into programs before they're ready and, and taking risks early in a program, that we end up having those programs take longer and cost more than they otherwise would. On the other hand, great to be disciplined when you're when you're spending $50 billion. We can't then go to the other extreme and say, because we have to have discipline on that, we're going to run all of our programs like major weapon systems, and everybody's got to have these rigid requirements, and we're not going to have agility, we're not going to have flexibility. We need to be able to take risks when it comes to prototypes. We need to be able to take risks when it comes to, to experimental purchases. We need, need to be able to bring in commercial contractors and commercial technology and new people who don't do business with the government otherwise. We need to do both that and have the discipline in the major weapon systems. I think Ellen Lord, with her separate acquisition tracks, has a has the concepts down, but I'm afraid that the practice may be different from the concept when we hear one of the services say that from now on all of their all of their acquisitions will be middle tier. Well, what happened to the other tiers? How can you have multiple tracks if you're saying that everything's going to be middle tier? So um, to me, with acquisition, the next challenge is we figured out the flexibility, we figured out the discipline. Now we need to be able to do them both at the same time and figure out which universes go in, which which acquisitions go into which which track, 
where we want to take risk and make sure that that's that we understand the risk we're taking and where we want to eliminate risk and understand what what it costs us to eliminate risk. So um, I think that's a major issue that the next that that that, that uh, should be on the management reform agenda of, of whoever whoever is addressing this next. But there are others uh, I'd be happy to talk about as well. Great, thank you, Peter. This next question comes from Sean Lennon. He asks, "Do you have any ideas how the DoD could more effectively use the Defense Working Capital Funds to leverage the flexibilities and the capabilities within them?" So um, defense working capital funds, for those who don't know it, are one of our problems in coming to a defense audit because this is, this is a place where the DOD buys stuff from itself. The working capital funds are set up so that when we have a business-like function in the Department of Defense, like providing communication services, providing logistic services, uh, managing inventory, um, those kinds of things, uh, we can have the military services the, the military departments buy those services from a working capital fund and the working capital fund takes in those purchases as income and then it can figure out how to spend its money to best produce the things it's going to sell back to back to the services. Um, and so it can the, the working capital funds can invest. They can trade off current, current purchases against capital budgets. They can have overhead. They can do the kinds of things that a business a business does. It's an important tool for the Department of Defense and it's an important tool um, because it allows them to operate in a more business-like way and it breaks them out of some of the rigidity of the budget and appropriations process. The idea of the working capital funds is that, that it's an incentive to be efficient and that's where the question comes up because um, working capital funds have this funding mechanism which is similar to the kind of funding approach you'd see in the private sector but of course they are tend to be monopoly suppliers so when your customer has to come to you for a purchase the pressure on you to be more efficient isn't the same as when you have when you have competing suppliers. So if, you, if you're the defense logistics agency, you're the only defense logistics agency in town. They have to come to you. Um, that's a different position from the position a commercial supplier would be in. So the question that I have with working capital funds is how do you get the kind of efficiency that you want to have? Not I, I would not personally see getting rid of working capital funds. I think they're tremendously important and they give flexibility. But how do you build more efficiency into that? And to me, in the absence of the market mechanism of competition, the best I think you could do is to bring the customer in the door so the customer can see what you're spending your money on. And so there's a rate setting process for the for the um, working capital funds where there's a determination of how much is your overhead rate for the year? How much can you charge in excess of your purchase price? when you sell things, if you're DLA or, 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 or DISA or one of the other working capital funded entities. Um, and that tends to be essentially a mechanical, a mathematical operation of, well, here are my expenses, I divide them by my customers, that's my, that's my overhead fee. I think the customers need to actually see what the build is for that overhead fee, for, for the fees that the working capital funds charge. They need to have complete transparency there so they can say, yes, I'm willing to pay for that. No, I'm not willing to pay for that. If it becomes a negotiation, I think that is that can substitute to some extent for the comp, for the competition process that the market would provide. So that's that's where I would go in terms of, of trying to improve the operations of working capital funds. Thank you, Peter. Uh, next question again from Tony Bertuca. This is kind of put you on the spot for a moment here, but your book does talk about this, and that is, uh, would you support reintegrating acquisition technology in the logistics, uh, the OSD office, which used to be one and then was split 
uh, I guess maybe two years ago in the NDAA into research engineering and acquisition and sustain. I think it was a mistake to split the two. Um, I think they're, they're closely related and there are a couple things that I think that happened. One is that the department spent two years separating out the functions and, and couldn't, couldn't do, it was spending so much time reorganizing itself that it had limited attention left for anything to make anything substantive work in the department. And the second is that you see parallel structures going up in the two offices and then having to negotiate things for each other. So instead of having one office to deal with um, bringing in uh, technical talent, um, they now have two. And whenever whenever Congress has a provision that says we want to we want to we want to bring in new technical talent, they have to negotiate about who's going to be the lead, who's going to be the follow, and you have two offices working together to do what one office should do. I think that's problematic. However. Would I advocate for, for putting them back together? I'm not so sure, because as I said, I think it took two years of work to tear them apart. I'm afraid it would take two years of work to put them back together again, and I'd hate to see the department go into yet another cycle of that reorganization. I think we reorganize too much, and we should focus sometimes on just managing the structure we have and working with that. Great, thank you. Uh, this next question comes from uh, Derek Gondek. He's on the Senate Budget Committee. He's interested in your thoughts about the Army's establishment of Army Futures Command, where they put the, most all of their RDT and E assets in one house uh, and, and kind of bundled all of their research development into one command. Um, I think it's too early to tell myself. Um, I think that, that the concept behind it of creating a priority for, 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 for looking at, at, at new technologies and, and, and new ways of fighting is an important one. And so I, you know, I, I think the idea behind it was a solid one. I have the same concern about that, or one of the same concerns about that that I did about the splitting of ATNL, which is that an awful lot of energy went into setting up the new command, finding a headquarters for it, those kinds of procedural things that are not directly mission related. Um, but, Nonetheless, I think underlying concept, it's, it seems to be it's, it's a sound concept that could pay back for the Army, but I think it's way too early to tell. I don't think you can judge the performance of command this, this close to its, to, its, to its establishment. Great. Thank you. So uh, this will be the last question, and I get to ask it, and uh, it comes uh, pretty much from this book here, Defense Management Reform, which, again, I commend to you, and the information on how to get it is in your chat box. But in the book, you talk about and there's another copy. The DOD is more uh, comparable to an economy versus than a, a company. And so interesting what you mean by that. And I'm wondering what additional complications does that bring to try and reform something that you consider an economy versus a, a Walmart or an Exxon? Well, so the department is a lot of different entities. It's not just the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, Marine Corps. It's within those entities you have your commands. You have your your, uh, your you have defense agencies. You have working capital funds. These different entities buy and sell from each other. Money doesn't flow in a simple stream from 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 government to DoD to contract. It can go from government to one part of DoD to MIPRD to another part to used to purchase from another part, transferred to another part, and so the the dollar can be spent 10, 15 times before it actually leaves the department in some cases. Um, and so tracking that money through becomes very, very difficult. One of the big problems that we have 
for the defense audit is what are called intragovernmental transfers, intradepartmental transfers. So money that's transferred within the Department of Defense. And we have, I can't remember the numbers, but um, my recollection is that, just to give you an idea of the scale, um, within the federal government as a whole, I seem to remember that it was about $20 billion of transfers that we couldn't document support for within the audit. And I assume that this $20 billion has been determined to be not big enough number to be material relative to the federal budget. So nobody really worries about the fact that we're not very good at transferring, the, at, at tracking those transfers between different agencies. The number for within the Department of Defense that can't be tracked is on the order of $100 billion. So you have a number that's five times as much, five times and, and presumably about five times as much in terms of transfers within a single but within a single department as you have between different agencies of the federal government. Now, all of a sudden, when it's $100 billion that you can't track, that becomes materially significant. The problem is that you have buyers and, you, and sellers. They have different accounting. They have their, each has their own accounting system. So you have one accounting system in your working capital fund over in, in, in your Department of Defense agency, and you have one, one system over in the Army in another defense, in, in another part of the Department of Defense. One make, the Army makes a purchase from the working capital fund. It shows up as a transaction on their books. It shows up as a transaction on the, on the working capital fund books. And in fact, for the for DOD as a whole, it is neither a purchase nor a sale. It's, it's, it, it nets out at zero because the department doesn't have any more or less money after that transaction. So they both have it on their books and they have to do what's called eliminate the transaction. They have to match the two. Well, nobody has systems that match the two because they're different accounting systems they have. So you have $100 billion a year of these kinds of transactions where you have both the buyer and the seller are in the Department of Defense, and we can't figure out how to match them so that we can figure out those are things that don't belong in the net books of the Department of Defense because they're not net transactions. That's just one example of the complication. But, you know, the Department of Defense runs hospitals. It runs, it runs healthcare systems, education systems, schools, groceries, everything you can think of. Um, if it's in the U.S. economy, it's in the Department of Defense. We have retirement systems. We have, you know, whatever it is, gas stations, fuel supply lines, telephone networks, everything that's in the U.S. economy is run in the Department of Defense. That makes it an incredibly, incredibly difficult entity to understand, to track, and especially to have uh, an auditable financial system for. Well, thank you very much. This has been a, a, just a delightful uh, session here, and I thank you, Peter, for writing this book. I thank you for agreeing to talk about it. Um, we're going to put up in a second, I think, a slide. There we go. That has uh, Mr. Levine's. Uh, he's consented to have his email address uh, released. And so if you've got a, a question that didn't get answered in the course of this discussion, he, he'd love for you to re reach out, as would I, if, you, if I can help you with anything. And then uh, following this session, you're going to get a survey. Uh, we hope you'll complete it. Uh, talking about how this went for you. What could we do differently? Uh, in terms of uh, heritage public events. And so if you're interested in uh, future heritage events, there the website is at the bottom of the slide. Uh, I thank you again for your attendance, and I hope you all have a great day. Thank you, Tom. I really appreciate it.